Chapter 38 of The Countess of Rodelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rodelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 38. The bark grounded definitively at the termination of the gardens and the woods, in a picturesque spot, where the stream buried itself among aged rocks and ceased to be navigable. Consuelo had a little time to contemplate the austere landscape lighted by the moon. They were still in the vast enclosure of the residence, but art had been applied in this place only to preserve the primitive beauty of nature. The ancient trees scattered at random over stretches of dark turf, the happy accidents of soil, the hills with precipitous sides, the irregular cascades, the herds abounding and timid deer. A new personage was there to attract Consuelo's attention. It was Gottlieb, seated negligently upon the pole of a sedan chair, in the attitude of a calm and dreamy expectation. He started on recognizing his friend of the prison, but on a sign from Marcus he refrained from speaking to her. "'Do you then forbid this poor child to clasp my hand?' said Consuelo in a low voice to her guide. "'After your initiation you will be free here in all your actions,' replied he, in the same manner. "'Be contented now with seeing that Gottlieb's health is ameliorated and that his physical strength is restored to him.' Can I not learn, at least, returned the neophyte, if he suffered any persecution on my account, after my flight from Spandau? Forgive my impatience. That thought troubled me incessantly until the day when I saw him passing near the enclosure of the pavilion. He did suffer, in fact, replied Marcus, but only for a short time. As soon as he knew that you were delivered, he boasted with an artless enthusiasm of having contributed thereto, and his involuntary revelations during his sleep were near becoming fatal to some among us. They wished to shut him up in an insane hospital, as much to punish him as to prevent his helping other prisoners. Then he fled, and as we had an eye upon his movements, we caused him to be conducted here where we have bestowed upon him the cares required by his body and his soul. We shall restore him to his family and his country as soon as we have given him the strength and prudence necessary to labor usefully in our work, which has become his, for he is one of our most pure and most fervent adepts. But the chair is ready, madam. Please to enter it. I shall not leave you though I confide you to the faithful and sure arms of Karl and Gottlieb. Consuelo seated herself submissively in a sedan chair closed on all sides, and receiving air only by some openings made in that part which looked towards the sky. She therefore saw nothing more of what passed about her. Sometimes she saw the stars shine, and thus judged that she was still in the open air. At others she saw this transparency intercepted without knowing if it were so by buildings or by the thick shade of trees. The bears walked rapidly and in the most profound silence. She tried for some time to distinguish, 
by the steps which creak now and then upon the sand, if four persons or only three accompanied her. Several times she thought she perceived the step of Liberani on the right of the chair, but this might be an illusion, and moreover, she ought to try not to think of him. When the chair stopped and was opened, Consuelo could not avoid a feeling of terror at seeing herself under the portcullis, still standing and glooming of an old feudal manor house. The moon shed her broad light upon the courtyard, surrounded by buildings in ruins and filled with persons dressed in white, who came and went, some alone, others in groups, like capricious spirits. The black and massive arcade of the entrance made the depth of the picture appear more blue, more transparent and more fantastic. Those wandering shades, silent or speaking to each other in a low voice, their motions without sound upon the long grass of the court. The aspect of the ruins, which Consuela recognized as those into which she had once penetrated and where she had again seen Albert, so impressed her that she had a feeling of superstitious terror. She instinctively looked for Liverani at her side. He was, in fact, there with Marcus, but the darkness of the vault did not allow her to distinguish which of the two offered her his hand. And this time, her heart, chilled by a sudden sadness and indefinable fear, did not inform her. They arranged the cloak over her garments and the hood upon her head in such a manner that you could see all without being recognized by anyone. Some person told her in a low voice not to let a single word, a single exclamation, escape her lips, whatever she might see. And she was led thus to the extremity of the court, where a strange spectacle indeed was presented to her eyes. A bell of low and funereal tone called the shadows at this moment towards the ruined chapel in which Consuelo had formerly, by the glare of the lightning, sought a refuge from the storm. That chapel was now illuminated by tapers disposed in a systematic order. The altar seemed to have been recently erected. It was covered with a funeral pall and adorned with strange insignia, in which the emblems of Christianity were mingled with those of Judaism, with Egyptian hieroglyphics and with various capitalistic signs. In the middle of the choir, the enclosure of which had been renewed with symbolical balustrades and columns, was seen a bier surrounded by tapers, covered with bones in the form of crosses and surmounted by a death's head, in which burned a flame of the color of blood. A young man, whose features Consuelo could not see, was led towards this cenotaph. A broad bandage covered half of his face. It was a candidate who appeared exhausted with fatigue or emotion. He had one arm and one leg bare. His hands were fastened behind his back, and his white robe was spotted with blood. A ligature on his arm seemed to show that he had, in fact, been recently bled. The shadows waved about him torches of burning pitch and scattered upon his face and chest clouds of smoke and showers of sparks. Then commenced between him and those who presided over the ceremony and who were distinguishing marks of their various dignities, a strange dialogue which recalled to Consuelo that which Cagliostro had caused her to hear at Berlin, between Albert and certain unknown persons. 
then some specters armed with swords, whom she heard called the terrible brothers, laid the candidate prostrate upon the tiles and rested the points of their weapons upon his chest, while several others, with a great clattering of swords, began a violent combat, one party pretending to prevent the admission of the new brother, calling him perverse, unworthy, and traitorous, while the others said they fought for him in the name of truth and an acquired right. This strange scene agitated Consuelo like a painful dream. The strife, the threats, the magic ceremony, the sobs uttered by several youths around the bier, were so well feigned that a spectator uninitiated beforehand would have been really frightened. When the godfathers of the candidate had conquered in the dispute and in the combat against their opposers, he was raised, a poniard was put into his hand, and he was ordered to march forward and strike whomsoever should oppose his entrance into the temple. Consuelo saw nothing further. At the moment when the new initiate directed his steps, with his arm lifted and in a kind of delirium, towards a low door whither he was impelled, her two guides, who had constantly held Consuelo's arm, led her rapidly away, as if to withdraw her from the sight of a horrible spectacle, and closing the hood over her face, conducted her by numerous windings and among ruins over which she stumbled more than once, into a place in which the most profound silence prevailed. There the light was restored to her, and she saw herself in the great octagonal hall in which she had before overheard the conversation between Albert and Trenck. All the openings were now closed and veiled with care. The walls and ceilings were covered with black. Tapers burned in this place also in a peculiar order, different from that in the chapel. An altar in the form of a calvary and surmounted by three crosses masked the great chimney. A tomb upon which were deposited a hammer, some nails, a lance, and a crown of thorns rose in the middle of the hall. Some persons dressed in black and masked were kneeling or seated around on carpets embroidered with tears of silver. They neither wept nor groaned. Their attitude was that of an austere meditation or of a mute and profound sorrow. Consuelo's guides caused her to approach the bier, and the men who guarded it Having retired to the other extremity, one of them addressed her thus, Consuelo, you have just seen the ceremony of a Masonic reception. You have seen, there as here, an unknown worship, mysterious signs, funereal images, initiating pontiffs, a beer. What have you understood by that vain scene, by those trials terrifying to the candidate, by the words which were addressed to him, and by the manifestations of respect, of love, and of sorrow around an illustrious tomb. I know not if I have understood aright, replied Consuelo. That scene troubled me. That ceremony seemed to me barbarous. I pitied the candidate whose courage and virtue were subjected to trials entirely material, as if physical courage were sufficient to initiate him to the work of moral courage. I blame what I saw, and I deplore those cruel plays of a gloomy fanaticism or those childish experiences of a faith entirely exterior and idolatrous. 
I heard obscure enigmas proposed, and the explanations given by the candidate appeared to me dictated by a distrustful or gross catechism. Still, that bleeding tomb, that immolated victim, that ancient myth of Hiram, a divine architect assassinated by jealous and avaricious workmen, that holy word lost for centuries and promised to the initiate as the magic key that is to open to him the temple. All this did not appear to me a symbol devoid of grandeur and of interest. But why is the fable so badly woven or so captious in interpretation? What do you mean by that? Did you listen attentively to the recital which you treat as a fable? This is what I heard and what I had before learnt from the books I was ordered to meditate upon during my retreat. Hiram, superintendent of the works of Solomon's Temple, had divided the workmen by categories. They had different salaries, unequal rights. Three ambitious men of the lowest category had resolved to share in the salary apportioned to the rival class and to force from Hiram the word of order, the secret formula which enabled him to distinguish the journeymen from the masters at the solemn hour of distribution. They lay in wait for him in the temple, where he had remained alone after the ceremony, and posting themselves at each of the three exits from the holy place. They prevented his departure, threatened him, beat him cruelly, and assassinated him, without having been able to tear from him his secret. The fatal word which was to make them equal to him and his privileged fellows. Then they carried away his body and buried it under the rubbish. And since that day, the faithful adepts of the temple, the friends of Hiram, search for his sacred word and pay almost divine honors to his memory. And now how do you explain this myth? I have meditated upon it before coming here, and this is the manner in which I understand it. Hiram is the cold intelligence and governmental skill of ancient societies. They rest upon the inequality of conditions, upon the system of castes. This Egyptian fable was fitted to the mysterious despotism of the Hierophants. The three ambitious men are indignation, revolt, and vengeance. They are perhaps the three castes inferior to the sacerdotal, who endeavor to recover their rights by violence. Hiram assassinated is despotism which has lost its prestige and its strength and which has descended into the tomb, carrying with it the secret of governing men by blindness and superstition. Is it thus truly that you would interpret this myth? I have read in your books that it was brought from the East by the Templars and that they used it in their initiations. They must, therefore, have interpreted it nearly thus. But in baptizing Hiram, the theocracy and the assassins, impiety, anarchy, and ferocity, the Templars, who wished to subject society to a kind of monastic despotism, lamented their impotence personified by the extinction of Hiram. The word of their empire, lost and again found, was that of association or of craft, something like the ancient Cite or the temple of Osiris. This is why I am astonished at seeing this fable still used in your initiations to the work of universal deliverance. 
I should wish to believe that it is proposed to your depths only as a trial of their intelligence and their courage. Well, we who did not invent those forms of masonry, and who do, in fact, use them only as moral trials, we who are more than journeymen and masters in this symbolic science, since after having passed through all the Masonic grades, we have reached a point where we are no longer Masons, according to the understanding of the common ranks of that order. We adjure you to explain to us this myth of Hiram as you understand it, in order that we may pronounce upon your zeal, your intelligence, and your faith, the judgment which will stop you here at the gate of the true temple or will open to you the entrance of the sanctuary. You ask of me the word of Hiram, the lost word, It is not that which will open to me the gates of the temple, but that word is tyranny or falsehood. But I know the true words, the names of the three gates of the divine edifice by which the destroyers of Hiram entered to compel that chief to bury himself under the ruins of his work. They are liberty, fraternity, equality. Consuela, your interpretation, exact or not, reveals to us the depths of your heart. Be therefore excused from ever kneeling at the tomb of Hiram. Neither will you pass through the grade in which the neophyte prostrates himself before the image of the remains of Jacob Mole, the grand master and the grand victim of the temple, of the soldier monks and of the prelate knights of the Middle Ages. You would issue victorious from the second trial as from the first. You would discern the lying traces of a barbarous fanaticism, still necessary at this day, as formulas of precaution against minds imbued with the principle of inequality. Remember well, therefore, that the Freemasons of the lower grades, for the most part, aspire only to construct a profane temple, a mysterious shelter for an association elevated to the rank of caste. You understand otherwise, and you will march directly to the universal temple, which must receive all men mingled in one same worship, in one same love. Still you must make here a last station and prostrate yourself before this tomb. You must adore the Christ and recognize in him the only true God. You say that to try me yet further, replied Consuelo with firmness, but you have deigned to open my eyes to exalted truths by teaching me to read your secret books. The Christ is a divine man whom we revere as the greatest philosopher and the greatest saint of ancient times. We adore him as much as it is permitted us to adore the best and the greatest of masters and of martyrs. We may well call him the savior of men in the sense that he taught those of his time truths of which they before had only glimpses and which were to cause humanity to enter into a new phase of light and of holiness. We may well kneel beside his tomb in order to thank God for having raised up for us such a prophet, such an example, such a friend. But we adore God in him and we do not commit the sin of idolatry. We distinguish between the divinity of the revelation and that of the revealer. I consent, therefore, to render to these semblums of a forever illustrious and sublime suffering the homage of a pious gratitude and of a filial enthusiasm. 
but I do not believe that the last word of the revelation was understood and proclaimed by the men at the time of Jesus, for it has not yet been authoritatively so upon the earth. I expect from the wisdom and the faith of his disciples, from the continuation of his work during 18 centuries, a more practical truth, a more complete application of the sacred word and of the doctrine of brotherhood. I expect the development of the gospel. I expect something more than equality before God. I expect and I invoke it among men. Your words are bold and your doctrines full of dangers. Have you thought carefully upon them in solitude? Have you foreseen the misfortunes which your new faith heaps up beforehand on your head? Do you know the world and your own strength? Do you know that we are one against a hundred thousand in the most civilized countries of the globe? Do you know that in the time in which we live, between those who render to the sublime revealer Jesus an injurious and gross worship, and those almost as numerous now who deny his mission and even his existence, between the idolaters and the atheists, there is no place for us in the light of the sun but in the midst of the persecutions, of the mockeries, of the hatred and contempt of the human race? Do you know that in France, at this hour, Rousseau and Voltaire, the religious philosopher and the incredulous philosopher, are almost equally proscribed? Do you know, a thing more fearful and more unheard of still, that from the depths of their exile they mutually proscribe each other, do you know that you are about to return to a world in which all will conspire to shake your faith and to corrupt your ideas? Do you know, in fine, that you must exercise your apostolate through dangers, doubts, deceptions, and sufferings? I am resolved to do so, replied Consuelo, casting down her eyes and placing her hand upon her heart. May God support me. Well, my daughter, said Marcus, who still held Consuela by the hand. You are about to be subjected by us to some moral sufferings, not to try your faith, which we cannot now doubt, but to strengthen it. It is not in the calmness of repose, nor in the pleasures of the world. It is in sorrow and in tears that faith is increased and exalted. Do you feel courage enough to brave painful emotions and perhaps violent terrors? If necessary, and if my soul will be profited thereby, I submit myself to your will, replied Consuelo, slightly oppressed. Immediately the invisibles began to remove the carpets and the torches which surrounded the bier. The bier itself was rolled into one of the deep embrasures of the windows, and several adepts, having provided themselves with bars of iron, hastened to raise a round stone which occupied the middle of the hall. Then Consuelo saw a circular opening large enough to admit one person, the granite curbstone of which, blackened and worn by time, was incontestably as ancient as the other details of the architecture of the tower. A long ladder was brought and lowered into the dark void of the opening. Then Marcus, leading Consuelo to the entrance, asked her three times in a solemn voice, if she felt strength enough to descend alone into the subterraneans of the great feudal tower. Listen, my fathers or my brothers, for I not know how I ought to call you, replied Consuelo. Call them your brothers, returned Marcus. 
You are here among the invisibles, your equals in grade, if you persevere but one hour longer. You will say farewell to them here, in order to meet them again in the presence of the Council of the Supreme Chiefs, of those whose voices are never heard, whose faces are never seen. Those you will call your fathers. They are the sovereign pontiffs, the spiritual and temporal chiefs of our temple. We shall appear before them and before you with uncovered faces if you are well determined to come and rejoin us at the gate of the sanctuary by this road so gloomy and strewn with horrors, which opens here beneath your feet and in which you must walk alone and without other aegis than that of your courage and your perseverance. I will walk in it if necessary, replied the neophyte trembling. But this trial which you announced to me as so austere, is it then inevitable? Oh, my brothers, you do not wish, doubtless, to trifle with the reason, already quite enough tried, of a woman without affectation and without false vanity. You have condemned me today to a long fast, and though emotion silences hunger, yet for several hours I feel myself physically weakened. I know not if I shall faint under the labors you impose upon me. I care little, I swear it to you, if my body suffer and fail, but will you not consider as a moral cowardice that which will only be a failing of matter? Tell me that you will forgive me if I have the nerves of a woman, provided that, when restored to myself, I have still the heart of a man. Poor child, replied Marcus, I prefer to hear you confess your weakness rather than that you should seek to dazzle us by a foolish boldness. We will consent, if you desire, to give you a guide, only one, to assist and succor you in your pilgrimage in case of need. Brother, added he, addressing the Chevalier Liverani, who, during all this dialogue, had remained near the door with his eyes fixed upon Consuelo. Take the hand of your sister and conduct her through the subterranean passage to the place of general rendezvous. And you, my brother, said Consuelo, bewildered, will you not accompany me also? That is impossible. You can have but one guide, and he whom I designate is the only one I am permitted to give you. I will have courage, replied Consuelo, wrapping her cloak around her. I will go alone. You refuse the arm of a brother and a friend? I refuse neither his sympathy nor his interest, but I will go alone. Go then, noble daughter, and fear nothing. She who descended alone into the cistern of tears at Riesenberg, she who braved so many dangers to find the hidden grotto of the Schreckenstein, will easily pass through the bowels of our pyramid. Go then, like the young heroes of antiquity, search for initiation through the trials of the sacred mysteries. Brothers, present to her the cup, that precious relic which a descendant of Ziska has brought among us, and in which we consecrate the august sacrament of fraternal communion. Liverani took from the altar a roughly worked wooden chalice, and having filled it, he presented it to Consuelo with a piece of bread. My sister, resumed Marcus, 
It is not only pleasant and generous wine and bread of pure wheat that we offer to you to restore your physical strength. It is the body and blood of the divine man, as he himself understood it. That is to say, the sign, at once celestial and material, of fraternal equality. Our fathers, the martyrs of the Taborite Church, thought that the intervention of impious and sacrilegious priests was not of equal value with the pure hands of a woman or of a child for the consecration of the August Sacrament. Commune then with us here, while waiting until you seat yourself at the banquet of the temple, where the great mystery of the supper will be more explicitly revealed to you. Take this cup and drink first. If you have faith in that act, a few drops of this beverage will be for you a sovereign fortifier, and your fervent soul will bear your whole being onwards upon wings of flame. Consuelo, having first drank, extended the cup to Liverani, who had presented it to her, and when the latter had drunk in his turn, he passed it to all the brothers. Marcus, having drained the last drops, blessed Consuelo and requested the assembly to concentrate their thoughts and to pray for her. Then he presented to the neophyte a little lamp of silver and assisted her to place her feet upon the first steps of the ladder. It is not necessary for me to tell you, added he, that no danger threatens your life, but fear for your soul. Fear never to reach the gate of the temple if you have the misfortune to look once behind you as you walk. You will have several stations to make in different places. You must then examine everything that is presented to your eyes. But as soon as a door is opened before you, pass it and do not return. This, you know, is the rigid prescription of the ancient initiations. You must also, according to the ancient rites, carefully preserve the flame of your lamp, the emblem of your faith and of your zeal. Go, my daughter, and let this thought give you superhuman courage. What you are now condemned to suffer is necessary for the development of your mind and your heart in virtue and the true faith. Consuelo descended the steps with precaution, and as soon as she had reached the bottom, the ladder was withdrawn, and she heard the heavy stone again fall and close the entrance of the subterranean above her head. The End of Chapter 38